How do we make sure that any kind of intergovernmental organization or government is answering the questions that people actually have about the pandemic? I've got two guests in this week's episode of Outlet Podcast, Nat Jenis and Megan Morelli. They both work with the nonprofit Medan. Now, Medan has built some incredible tools for journalists, helping them quickly fact check information and turn it back around for the public. As part of um, the, you know, kind of research unit within Medan that Meg and I have been working in, the Digital Health Lab, we've been trying to answer these questions for quite some time of, you know, what can the public health community actually do to support journalists in a way that's a program designed essentially by journalists for journalists or by fact checkers for fact checkers, rather than kind of as a public health person, these assumptions that I have about what a communicator might need. So I think in that way, Meg and I kind of coming together, you know, brains melding, fields sort of coming together and really trying to figure out, you know, what's useful, not just something that we could do. So when the COVID-19 pandemic hit last year, Nat with her background in public health and Megan with her background in journalism put together this digital tool called Health Desk, the goal being to infuse news coverage with facts related to COVID backed by scientists. The president met with congressional leaders. Doctors will start implanting the devices. And he heard that warning from the Coast Guard tonight. But now we're live in Orlando. But now we're live in Dallas. We're live in Boston tonight. Caitlin McCulley, 7 News 19. I'm Caitlin McCulley. I left my job as a TV news reporter in a pandemic to try to find a better way to share stories that matter. No BS. Thanks for listening to Outlet Podcast. You can download new episodes each week. Here's Nat Jenis and Megan Morelli. Um, so Medan itself is a technology not-for-profit organization. So we do a lot of work around um, media literacy, around, um, you know, training specifically for, um, you know, fact-checking organizations around the world. Um, we work in a number of different languages as well. Um, we've got team members that are working in Egypt, in Lebanon, in India, in Brazil. Um, so it's an organization that definitely tries to bring a global perspective to a lot of the kind of challenges in media and challenges that sort of news organizations and journalists are facing today. And what's your background now? But my background's actually in public health. So um, I finished my master's in public health at the Harvard School of Public Health and my background's in kind of health, health literacy and health equity and the role that sort of information plays in people's health outcomes. Okay. And Megan, yours is more media background? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I did the Columbia Journalism School program. Um, I've worked at the Globe and Mail um, and on, you know, Netflix show um and yeah media media (laughs) um so coming to this project has been really fun because nat and i have really gotten to put our heads together um i knew very little about public health coming into this um so i feel like yeah it's been a new world to to work in well it's a new world in general with the covid pandemic i mean that was a perfect time for this health desk project. Basically, what we saw happening when um, the pandemic hit, um, at least in newsrooms, was that all of a sudden, um, reporters that uh, had not really covered science before, or health before, um, who were maybe on the general assignment desk or the business desk, all of a sudden, everybody, um, all of a sudden, COVID-19 was everybody's beat. Um, And so there was sort of this big scramble to um, become experts on the topic, um, which is extremely complex. Um, 
everything from like infectious needing an infectious disease background to needing a public health background so many different sort of layers there um so that was definitely a challenge that we were hearing from reporters um and then also experts um were not as accessible obviously as everyone needed them to be just because they were busy working on you know solving COVID-19 problems. Um, so we basically put this resource together um, in order to sort of support some of the gaps that we were seeing um, in newsrooms. Um, yeah. Okay. And so how does how does it work? How do news organizations interact with Health Desk? Yeah. So right now, um, basically journalists ask us questions either um, through our um, email or through our online form, and they can ask us to explain any kind of science topic um, on COVID-19. So it ranges anything from sort of like very basic information about masks to, you know, what does it, what can you, can you provide an explainer on this clinical trial um, and what it means for, you know, COVID-19. So um, basically that's how it works. They can ask us questions and we produce content um, for them and for their reporting. Okay, so you can set them up with interviews, you can give them statistics or, or, or written data also. Yeah, so often the way that it works is um, less like, we, I don't know that we like have given a lot of interviews now. Okay. Can you remember any interviews that we've given? Yeah, there are a couple of um, journalists that had reached out, especially earlier on in the pandemic, um, with a specific set of questions more often than that now um we're more so responding to specific questions that aid in the overall story arc or, or you know um missing kind of public health details that would be kind of crucial to making a point in an article so that's what we've been focusing on but our team of scientists is always super excited when it's um the opportunity to give an interview or to share kind of more personal perspectives on these topics for sure and how did you guys go about putting together your team of scientists that's a great question. Um, it started, you know, in um, conversations with folks that, you know, personally, I had gone to school with who were experts in infectious disease and the sort of networking built out from there trying to seek people that had different types of expertise. So now, you know, we have a uh, amazing, brilliant nutritionist who also works on a team that's been helping to address a lot of the questions around the, um, you know, implications of supplementation or different um, um, homeopathic interventions that, you know, people are testing out to, to um, try to address their own COVID-19 symptoms or concerns. Um, we have folks that are experts in COVID-19 policy that have been working actually with political leaders around the US to implement um, COVID policy. So we tried to bring together a team with diverse enough backgrounds and experiences to really be able to answer the diversity of questions that journalists have been sharing with us. Yeah, at, at, at what point, I'm curious, did you guys realize there was a big need for this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think like a lot of it was coming from, we like me, Dan, as, as in general has a big network of fact checkers and journalists and a lot of the um, a lot of the information that we were getting from them about there being a gap um, was coming from that. A lot of it was also yeah. just sort of like instinct and me seeing a lot of the journalists that I know and work with really struggling to um, and scrambling to get access to experts and to sort of like not just have access to experts for a quote, but to have somebody actually walk you through how um, how it all sort of fits together and how it all works in a more kind of holistic way. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think a lot of it came from that. Not do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think as part of um, the, you know, kind of research unit within Medan that Meg and I have been working in the digital health lab, we've been trying to answer these questions for quite some time of, you know, what can the public health community actually do to support journalists in a way that's a program designed essentially by journalists for journalists or by check fact checkers for fact checkers, rather than kind of as a public health person, these assumptions that I have about what a communicator might need. So I think in that way, Meg and I kind of coming together, you know, brains melding fields sort of coming together and really trying to figure out, you know, what's useful, not just something that we could do. So Miriana has been around for, for several years now, right? Mm-hmm. About yeah. 15. Okay. So I've been in journalism for working at TV stations for 10 years now. And in this 10 years, I've seen it change so much in the industry. It's evolving at lightning pace and we can't really keep up. We're all kind of struggling to keep up. So I'm curious how mm. you guys have adapted as an organization, as the, as the journalism field that you're supporting and working with is changing so quickly. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's so many different ways that um, we've sort of like adapted alongside um, so many of our news partners. Um, Some ways that we've done that, like a lot of what we're doing is sort of like at the forefront of the like newsroom innovation style um, thinking. So um, for example, we um, have a bunch of projects where we're working um, with journalists who use like WhatsApp tip lines to communicate with their audiences. Um, and we provide a bunch of infrastructure for that, um, which is a big new thing that we've sort of like um, been adapting to as as more and more um, information sharing moves to closed messaging networks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the biggest example that I can think of right now. Yeah, I've been seeing that too as a, as a trend in the industry, whether that's startups that are trying to make... Um the internet searchable through text message. So does that play into your other tool, Check? It's useful to think of Check as sort of this backbone infrastructure for any kind of collaborative um, verification or reporting process. So it's essentially a tool where a fact-checking or reporting team can kind of work together on addressing a particular piece of information. So it's really useful because there are features that highlight Um, you know, transparency where um, different contributors have contributed to an overall report or verification. Um, And then the cool part, sorry, if you can hear the dogs in the background. That's okay. I got a helicopter going out my window. Okay, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is, this is life in this building. Um, So uh, one of the really interesting elements is um, the integration that we've had with WhatsApp. So we've been um, working directly with them over the last almost two years actually to the date on um, supporting journalists and fact checkers that have been developing as Meg was saying their own sort of like tip lines or helplines so they can connect directly with their audiences and essentially provide um, like a direct kind of personal information seeking experience. So what check also is, is kind of the backbone for that infrastructure. So any kind of journalist or fact checking team can create their own sort of customizable bot infrastructure, kind of like a set of menu options that their audience can, you know, use to um, learn about, you know, whatever information has been pre-programmed into that. And then the cool added feature that doesn't really exist in kind of many information seeking bots so far is an audience member can ask that organization a question. 
and that question gets added to check, which is kind of the collaborative tool, um, the news organization can prioritize um, or filter content based on their content priorities. Like if they're really focused on addressing COVID-19 transmission information, they can prioritize based on that and then kind of collaboratively respond in the tool and it gets automatically sent back out to the user. We also have um, an amazing machine learning team that has been working specifically on text matching. So if a lot of folks have submitted the same question, we're able to respond to all of them at the same time. So it helps with this kind of personalized information seeking process, but doing it on a scale that's feasible for, you know, large populations that want to talk to a newsroom. It almost sounds like social listening in a way, like if you're able to match this similar questions across a, a large group of people, you, you would almost get a sense of what the general thinking is, if there are bigger problems that are arising or, or concerns among a specific population. Yeah, totally. And that's been one of the biggest concerns in the pandemic as well has been how do we make sure that any kind of intergovernmental organization or government is answering the questions that people actually have about the pandemic, um, you know, versus the questions that we think need to be answered from a public health perspective. So check is a really useful tool in kind of putting together you know, similar questions, even across languages and finding out what the priorities really are. Um, and it's our hope, especially with ongoing research to kind of translate this into policy recommendations or information production recommendations, like what should public health folks actually be focusing on? And how do we make sure it's it's what people need? Wow. How many users do you have? Regularly, there's about um, kind of continuously who continue to use um, the health desk uh, um, kind of workflow. We have a, over 30 different organizations from the, around the world that sort of regularly use it, but they produce content for millions of people around the world. So we like to kind of think about both metrics in terms of what, you know, public health folks are really able to reach. Yeah. How long did it take to put Health Desk into practice? Oh, depends how you're measuring it. I think it's, <laughs> it's like, uh, it was a pretty fast turnaround, I would say. Um, we, sort of saw that the pandemic was gaining a lot of traction and becoming sort of as significant as it is today. And it was a pretty immediate mobilization of Matt's um, network of public health experts and of the, sole, the whole sort of like publishing process model. Yeah. Um, so I would say very quickly. Yeah, almost like, like a March to April kind of a oh, yeah, wow. quick turnaround. Yeah, like yeah, weeks. <laughs> it, felt, yeah. it felt like weeks. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you had a lot of grateful journalists as a result of this. What kind of feedback have you gotten? People, people, people have been give, giving us really good feedback. One thing that we've found um, that was sort of a <laughs> surprise and kind of an afterthought for us, but ended up being incredibly, we got like the most feedback on this feature. Um, and it's actually under construction right now, but it's getting put back up on the site soon is our glossary our scientists just have spent a lot of time just defining phrases um, like RNA or like, uh, you know, what is a preprint study and how is it different from a regular study that's been, you know, not preprint. Um, so that is the biggest thing that I would say we've gotten the most positive feedback on, which we weren't yeah. really expecting, you know, we just thought it was kind of like, yeah, of course we'll publish the glossary. Really quick reference points for journalists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And trying to get that done across languages too. Um, working with organizations like Localization Lab or Translators Without Borders to get that glossary into, you know, languages where certain terms either may not exist yet, 
or, you know, need kind of further delineation. Okay. Now, is this searchable for the average person or do you need to be a part of a news organization? So right now it is online, even though our audience is news organizations. Um, And yeah, so it it is online, um, but we do sort of like work and respond to requests from our from our partner organizations. We all hope the pandemic will be over soon. And it's, you know, the the vaccine rollout, it's looking encouraging. But is this a project that you foresee will stay up for a while? Or are you going to adapt it in, in certain ways? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that we're going to keep doing. Um, You know, the vaccine rollout in the U.S. is well on its way, but a lot of other countries um, won't be seeing vaccines, um, you know, and at the same rate like this year or even next year. So it's definitely still a resource, especially for our network of partners that I think will still be valuable in the years ahead. Um, And we also want to sort of start branching a bit out and covering um, a few different sort of health topics that aren't necessarily COVID-19. So there's a way that we may be sort of just broadening our scope um, to continue helping. Yeah, there's, I mean, journalists have already been asking us questions that are like intersectional with COVID-19, but aren't necessarily COVID-19 specific. Mm -hmm. We've had questions about smallpox, about other infectious disease, about heart disease and how it you know interacts with other COVID-19 symptoms, long COVID, Um, so, you know, our team of scientists has expertise in a variety of different ways, um, kind of fields. And at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that health is being reported on when it needs to be and isn't, you know, not being touched on, especially by fact checkers for lack of scientific support and scientific experts that they can reliably reach out to. And, you know, if we can continue filling that gap across a variety of different health topics, um, and hopefully provide more support on, you know, reducing the impacts that health misinformation has on actual health outcomes, um, mm-hmm. the more we can support that, you know, we'll continue on as long as we can. This amount of misinformation and disinformation around COVID-19 and around the vaccine and all of that, um, what has that battle been like? I'm totally exhausting. It can be totally, totally <laughs> tiring. Um, And, you know, are just like any group of like fact checkers or journalists that are covering a hard topic, um, may feel, you know, worn out. Um, Our team of scientists, similarly, um, you know, it it can be really hard. And like mental health is an important thing to talk about, especially when you're covering topics that are um, really stressful and grim and and topics that you're not just, um, you know, writing explainers about, but that you're also experiencing. Mm-hmm. is a very, um, you know, complex, complex thing to, to work through. Have yeah. you gotten any sense from your scientists and, and doctors that they've experienced people changing their mind? Like these people who they were buying into the misinformation or they were misled and then they changed their mind. Yeah. Like, so we don't necessarily get that kind of data because we give the information to the newsrooms that then interact with those sort of like individuals that are sort of like public. Um, So I don't know if we have any anecdotes of that specifically. Um, I certainly learn new things about COVID all the time from them and change my behavior because (laughs) of what they write. (laughs) So if I'm someone that, you know, yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. I was just curious. I'm just always interested in in the effects that uh, facts and, and information from reliable sources have on people and what it is that gets them to change their mind, you know, um, because it is possible, yeah, sure. you know, we, we um, 
we, we do hear some anecdotes of that. I just am always interested in like what it is that, that makes somebody go from believing one thing to believing another. Yeah. yeah totally. There's this concept that our team has been researching, especially over the last kind of six or seven months um, that we've been referring to as mid-information. So it's super often that when we have kind of conversations about, you know, the type of information that, you know, changes people's behavior for better or for worse. Um, and when we're talking about false information, there's usually this kind of like, you know, binary classification, like, is it misinformation? the spread of kind of false information or is it disinformation which adds this layer of intent behind it like is mm -hmm. it intentionally spread um false information and what we've really been seeing through the covid pandemic has been you know there's this third category of information that actually there isn't enough scientific evidence in order to make a conclusion about it yet and that's really where we're seeing so much of the problematic information kind of come in because there, it isn't possible for a fact checker to assess whether the claim is true or false, mm -hmm. because there's no kind of ground truth, there's no official information that you can make that evaluation against. So we've learned, especially through this experience around how different it is to communicate about mid-information than it is to communicate about information we know is false or we know is false and is being intentionally spread. So, you know, some examples like, um, you know, how emerging evidence around masks changed kind of policy and protocol throughout, um, you know, how as the months, you know, continued and people found that, you know, not only do folks who are sick need to wear masks, but also folks who aren't sick and actually, um, you know, is, you know, double masking a recommendation versus not. And, you know, as more evidence comes, you're able to develop policies that are actually, you know, reflective of, of what folks should be doing. But throughout, there's these pockets of opportunity for folks to fill them with misinformation. Um, and kind of working, Meg, especially really working with the team of scientists to kind of address these beforehand, identify, you know, this is an emerging scientific concept. We don't have enough information about it, but it could lead to misinformation and making sure our scientists are keeping fact checkers and journalists up to date and almost like forecasting, hey, this is something where there might be some misinformation, it might cause some problems. Um, this is, you know, an area of mid information that you should probably keep on your radar has been really yeah. interesting. That is so interesting. And I love that you guys have identified this area of vulnerability and uh, as a way to predict what might need extra attention from scientists and what might need stronger messaging. Um, it's almost, it's almost an additional kind of like level of, of training or almost preparedness to start integrating into learning for folks that are creating media is, you know, what do you do in this sort of vacuum of information? Well, and it's in line with when there isn't a, a defined right or wrong, when there's not, when there's not a, this is true, this is not true, like these shades of gray, people don't usually do that well with uncertainty. Um, yeah, and yeah. so I think it's, um, it's an impulse they to an instinct to try to fill it with something. Totally, totally. They jump to their own conclusions because it's like the desire to know a truth like sort of outpaces the actual discovery of the truth. And so there's, yeah, people just draw yeah. their own conclusions and, and it becomes sort of can be can become harmful. Yeah, yeah. there's this amazing researcher in, um, in um, Nigeria right now, her name is Dr. Teresa Amobi, and she's specifically studying the impact of people's desire to return to their status quo and the impact that, you know, folks kind of 
developing kind of theories and pursuing those pathways as long as it'll get you to return to kind of the life that you want to lead during a pandemic. And her research has been really interesting in that field as well. Wow. Uh, I'll have to follow that for sure. What else is in, in the making? Well, one thing that we do want to do with help desks that we're kind of like experimenting with, if there's a demand for it, is plugging our explainers directly into um, like onto newsroom websites. Um, basically, the idea around that is that that means that general assignment reporters don't actually have to get pulled from the general assignment desk. <laughs> so hopefully we would be increasing capacity more um, if we were able to sort of respond to requests and um, basically produce content um, for those newsrooms. Um, but yeah, I think on top, other than that, like we, we do want to expand to more topics to be able to cover more things for um, our partners and um, yeah, just sort of keep going. Yeah, it seems like in general, just trying to trying to infuse coverage in this evolving digital landscape of media with fact based, uh, reliable information and science. Yep, hundred. Yeah, exactly. And just making it easier to do that. Like it's so mm -hmm. hard to do. It's so hard to read. You know, a scientific paper, even as someone who's you know studied epidemiology, it's still really hard for me sometimes to interpret a scientific article. And you know, imagining um, the experience of that for someone you know learning about the field as a journalist might need to in a pandemic in you know half an hour. Um, what does that Been process there. look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. 